The title that I have for the message today is uh, The New Covenant Day of Atonement. The New Covenant Day of Atonement. Sometimes people ask, you know, where are the holy days in the New Testament? And uh, they're there. Some are more prominent than others. I mean, we get a lot of information about Passover. When you understand the meaning of the Days of Unleavened Bread, you see it all over the place. But there's actually, oh, almost forgot Pentecost. There's quite a bit about Pentecost, too. But when you come to the Fall Holy Days, eh, maybe a little less. Well, there's actually a lot of information in the New Testament about the Day of Atonement. And the relevance of the Day of Atonement for New Covenant believers is covered in the book of Hebrews. So you might want to take Hebrews and open it up to chapter 9 and uh, put a little ribbon in there if you've got one. We will look at some other scriptures, but we'll spend a lot of time in Hebrews. When we look at the Day of Atonement, we've got four main themes of the day. And you can't cover them all. You just can't. But you can mention them all. So let's take a look at these four. First, the priest has this ritual that he goes through of cleansing and purification. And you can read all about all this in, in Leviticus 16, of course. But this first, this first theme, the priest's ritual, cleansing and purification, is in my books a, a symbol of moral and salvation issues. And this is actually covered very thoroughly in the book of Hebrews. We've also got the priest's entrance into the Holy of Holies, within the tabernacle. And that, to me, is a symbol of a change of, of status and change from the old to the new covenant, which is also covered very thoroughly in the book of Hebrews. Third, we've got the removal of the Azazel goat into the wilderness. This is not covered very thoroughly or at all really in the book of Hebrews, although I think it touches on some issues and I hope to draw them out. So I'll touch on that very briefly. Then we have the matter of fasting. Okay? That is not addressed a lot in the book of Hebrews, but I will touch on it very briefly as well. So in the book of Hebrews, Chapters 7 and 8 are leading up to chapter 9, right? Okay, yeah. Well, if you have a paper Bible, you can't see this so well when you use uh, like a phone or a tablet, but if you have a paper Bible, you can kind of look back and you can kind of survey them. And yeah, it's all about the priest. It's all about the change to the new high priest. And Jesus becomes a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there's two whole chapters talking all about this change in the priesthood. So now the office of high priest is, is fulfilled by the resurrected Christ. And then we hit chapter 9. And what does chapter 9 start off with? It starts off with the layout of the tabernacle. It's not very New testament is it? Well, let's just read it. And I think that we'll be able to get quite a bit out of it with atonement in mind, the day of atonement in mind. Uh, Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 5 say this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. And there's plenty of detail. If you go into the uh, book of Exodus, you'll see a lot, or you can read all about that. But this is just giving us a very brief look at this special place, this, this tent of meeting it was called. And the tent of meeting was divided into two sections by this large, heavy curtain that hung down in the middle. It wasn't a big, big room, you know. Uh, it would fit in this room. It was very small, and it was divided into by this big 
heavy curtain. And on one side of the curtain, okay, were various pieces of temple furniture, like the lampstand and the table where they'd put the showbread on and stuff like that. And the priest would go in and out of that, that section of the temple every day. Every day, because he had daily duties to perform in that part of the tent of meeting. The other side, on the other side, was a place that's called, um, here it said, the most holy place. Sometimes you might have heard it spoken of as the holy of holies, and there's probably other ways that it's referred to. In this section of the tent of meeting was the ark and the altar of incense. And it was a very important place. The glory of the Lord would appear above the ark known as the mercy seat. And you can read in scripture where, you know, they couldn't enter the room because the cloud of glory was, was there. And that's where it was in this most holy place. That mercy seat, also called the ark, is a symbol of the throne of God. The throne of God. It's an earthly symbol. It's only meant to picture the reality of God's throne in the third heaven. And the priest never went in there. Except one time a year. One time a year he went in there. Anytime, any other time he went in there, he would be killed. One time a year he went in there. One exception was the Day of Atonement. Okay. In Hebrews, let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, like I just said. But, the, uh, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. So this is talking about the Day of Atonement, isn't it? And never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, which they had committed in ignorance. Very important feature of the Day of Atonement. Sins committed in ignorance. Now, the details of what the priest did on that one day a year when he went into this, you know, kind of sectioned off portion of the tent of meeting, you can read about that in Leviticus 16. And I'm sure that a lot of us have gone through this many, many times. I am not going to go to Leviticus 16 today, okay? I'm going to assume that you've read it, and if you haven't, you ought to. If you've been here in previous years, you've heard me go through it in detail. But let me just kind of give you a brief overview, okay? The priest would bathe himself. He would bathe himself. This is a part of the instructions from God. This is an important feature of the Day of Atonement, this cleansing. He would bathe himself and he would sacrifice a single bull as a purification offering. There are different types of offering and this one was a purification offering, okay? And he offered this for himself before entering the holy place because, of course, he, was, he, was, he had sins himself. He would also bring in two goats to use and they would be also used for purification purposes. One is an offering and the other had a different purpose. And then he also brought in this ram, which would be used as a burnt offering, different type of offering, that would come after all the purification took place. Okay? Now one of, one of the goats would be selected, and it was selected by lots, meaning they left it up to God to decide which goat would go which way, right? And that one goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people which had been committed in ignorance, as we read. And the blood of that first goat would then be used to purify and cleanse the tabernacle, uh, which was contaminated by the sins of the people around it. You know, the tabernacle was, well, they had a big camp of, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people, and they were all camped around the tabernacle, and it was in the center. And God says, the tabernacle itself becomes contaminated just by, the, by virtue of being in the midst of the people who sin in ignorance, and it needed to be cleansed, and it was done once a year. The other goat, the other goat, um, well, he would have the sins of the community, sins committed in ignorance, ceremonially or symbolically laid upon its head. Someone put his, their hands on the goat's head. Then they'd take the goat off, lead it off into the wilderness, and they'd just uh, leave it out there. 
I presume it would, it would uh, die. Now, when you say ignorant, right? If, you, if I call someone ignorant, I say, you're just ignorant. Well, now we kind of think of that as, you know, you're saying, you're just stupid, right? You're ignorant. But ignorant means not knowing any better. That's what it means. You don't know any better. And uh, the people of Israel, they had God's word. They had God's word, but they still got into trouble. They still got into mess ups. And they still became victims of deception. Deception of not knowing any better. Now in our day, we're a long way off from that, but some things never change. The way of God has been made known in this world. There's a Bible on, you know, there's a Bible everywhere you turn in the United States, okay? If you just look at our country, and then you go to a hotel or a motel, and you pull the little drawer open under the telephone table, there's usually a Bible in there. I mean, they're everywhere. They're on the TV, they're on the radio. The Word of God is made known in this country and in this world, but... There's still a lot of ignorance. And there's a lot of deception in our world. And the fruits of the ignorance and deception is at work. I mean, it's, it's, you can see it. There's a lot of evil and wickedness in our world. Because people grow up in a world of lies. Lies that reach to the very heart and core of reality. And the New Covenant writings are very, very clear that Satan is the source of deception. I mean, we're responsible for the choices we make. You know, we, we, we allow ourselves to be led into deception. We're still culpable. But he's the source of deception. He's the father of lies, as Jesus said. And he's full of lies about who God is and what God's all about, what he's up to, what he's doing. And lies, when told frequently enough, they sink in. There have been some studies done by, you know, people who do this kind of stuff, uh, psychologists, I guess, um, would do this, where they've done these experiments with people where they would tell them lies. And the people would go into this thing and they would know that it's a lie. They would be told, well, we're gonna, this is going to be a lie. And just by virtue of repeating and repeating and repeating the lie to them, it would change those people and they would kind of believe the lie. Because that's how the brain works. That's how the human mind works. You hear a lie often enough and you, you start thinking, maybe there's something to this. Lies about God have sunk in. Lies about his truth and his way of living. So like that, that second goat um, that has to be cast out into the wilderness, Satan must be confronted and overcome. Even, you know, in our day it needs to be overcome by us. We can't just wait for Christ to return to have a showdown with Satan. No. Uh, this is a present reality for believers. It's a present reality for you and me and him and her. I mean, prophetically, at the end of the age, Satan will be cast into a bottomless pit, and he will be sealed over. And, you know, the, the, like I mentioned, the second goat there in the ceremonies in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, they picture that event. Because, you know, when you look at the whole picture, not just the sins have to be dealt with, but the cause of the sin, the cause of the problem, God just doesn't put a band-aid on everything. He's going to dig it out. And the cause of the problem needs to be dealt with. The source of ignorance needs to be banished. Now this, I'm just going to touch very briefly on, the, on this, fasting. I believe this is one of the reasons why fasting is part of the observance of the Day of Atonement. Remember, when, when Jesus, uh, he was with his, the disciples... And they were casting out demons. And then there was this situation where they could not cast the demon out. And, and they came to him and they said, we haven't been able to cast this one out. And what did he say? He basically said, look, especially stubborn demons 
can only be driven out with the inclusion of fasting and prayer. That's why I think fasting is part of the Day of Atonement. Okay. New Covenant, Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement has meaning for our day, for you and me today. It's not, it's not all in the future. Let's read on in Hebrews uh, 9, verses 8 through 10. The Holy Spirit, verse 8, was showing by this, by all these things that were built into the Day of Atonement, so it's getting at The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, you know, curtained off, if you will, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And this is an illustration. It's a picture, okay? That's what, the, that's what God's Word says. All this stuff is a picture. It is an illustration for now, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear and cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now one of the features of the Day of Atonement that we, we haven't talked about yet, I didn't put it in the big four there, is our present separation from God. And we sang a couple of songs that talked about becoming at one with God and, and restoring our relationship with God. But part of the meaning of the day is a recognition that there's something wrong. <laughs> something bad happened and it needs to be fixed, this separation from God. It was lost at Eden. And if you're familiar with the, the Bible story, you, you know this, and we've gone over it many times. You go back to the very beginning of scripture. It's lost at Eden, why? Because of disobedience, because of sin. I can't say that they were ignorant, but they were deceived. And what happened? They were kicked out. And we were all kicked out through them. We were all kicked out of God's presence. And the way back in, into the garden was, was blocked off, wasn't it? And there were two cherubim with flaming swords, <laughs> you know, to guard the way back. So they couldn't come back in. Those carabine, by the way, that, with the flaming swords, they're, they're embroidered onto the veil that stands in the tabernacle or, or the tent of meeting, the veil that separates the holy place. They're carabine embroidered into the veil that stand there and guard that no one can enter the presence of God except under very specific circumstances, spelled out in the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was, and, and still remains, a symbol picturing the coming restoration of this direct relationship with God. But it was only a symbol. It was only a symbol. As the scripture said, it was an illustration. It was a picture. It, it was a symbol. The reality of restoring that relationship would only come to pass through Jesus Christ. So the offerings and all the other stuff that takes place in Leviticus 16, well, the offerings, some of the other stuff remains, but the offerings of Leviticus 16 are no longer part of our observance of the Day of Atonement. No one brought a bull and two goats and a ram into the building, I hope. If you did, I hope you brought a shovel. No, we don't bring the animals in. It's not part of our service. We don't do that. But that part is, that's done. That's done away by the sacrifice of Christ. Under the new covenant, those have been replaced by Christ's own sacrifice. And he also, you know, acts as the high priest, which the book of Hebrews goes through in, in great detail in the chapters that lead up to the ninth, which we're reading right now. And the important thing is the symbols and the outward observance, they were important, but they didn't have the power to actually transform the people 
from within. They were just pictures. They weren't the reality. That only comes about, that cleansing of the conscience only comes about through Jesus Christ. It spoke of a new order. Uh, you might, I think in the King James it says, time of reformation. Which makes you think of, you know, the Reformation in the 1500s, but no. Time of new order. It means the time of setting things straight. Look it up. It's only used once in the scripture. Time of setting things straight. A new order. The new order, I think, is in some ways it's kind of saying the same thing as the new covenant. So we're in Hebrews 9. Back up just a little bit and go with me to Hebrews 8, verse 10. And it says, leading up into all this discussion of the tabernacle and the priest and the symbolism and all that, says this. It says, this is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the new covenant, the new order, the new deal, the reformation, setting things straight. And the new order, the new covenant is concerned with the actual transformation of people within, their spirit, their character, their mind, their thoughts, their deeds. It's concerned with the actual inward transformation, which the outward works and the outward symbols could only point towards and remind us of. Okay, back to Hebrews 9. Let me pick it up in verse 11 and just read verses 11 and 12. It says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was, is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. And he did not enter, and he's talking, it's talking about the Day of Atonement here. Just, just think of this. This is about the Day of Atonement. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, during his life, when Jesus walked around and, you know, he was in the flesh and son of man and doing this, you know, ministry, he never entered into the Holy of Holies. Because there was a temple, you know, and, and they replaced all the, the tent with the big temple made of stones and stuff. And they had a veil and, and, and they had a most holy place on the same mountain where, the, you know, it was supposed to be Mount Moriah. He never went in there. The Herodian temple that was standing there in 31 AD, you know, last year of his life. He never went in there, ever. Did he? And when he went, no. He wasn't allowed to go in. But it says in Scripture that he entered a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And the meaning of this more perfect tabernacle can be taken in a couple of different directions. Okay, we're going to talk about those. Let's, let's talk about it. One, it could be the actual throne room of God, which, you know, of course, the tabernacle and the most holy place was set up to symbolize, right? Moses was told, make these things. They are a pattern of what is in heaven. It could also be the body, mind, and soul of every believer. Because as Scripture says, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Before we move into these two, we also learned a couple of things, a couple of things, a couple of characteristics about this more perfect tabernacle. It says this more perfect tabernacle is not of this creation, right? Not made of human hands. Therefore, it's talking about it being spiritual, not made of stones and metal and wood, right? And it says that the sacrifice made within it is not with the sacrificial animals, but with Christ's own blood. So that's what we've, we've learned about this, this tabernacle. So let's take a look at the symbolism, because, you know, there's two possibilities. I think they're both valid. First, let's talk about the body, mind, and spirit of believers. Okay? Body, mind, and spirit of believers. Uh, we're in Hebrews, if you would go to the next section here, which would be 
uh, verse 13 and 14. It says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. And I, I think, I, I don't know this, I can't actually prove this, but you know, the heifer's all about creating special water for purifying. Okay? Maybe that's what the priest had to do as part of his bathing. Don't know. Speculation. But it says, uh, it sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, under the old system, if you are familiar with Leviticus 16, you know all the stuff that goes on there. Under the old system of blood and water, remember he had to bathe himself, and he had these animals, and he would kill them, and they'd drain the blood off, right? And then he'd take the blood, and he'd, he'd sprinkle it on the altar, and he'd take some of it on his finger, and he'd smear it on the veil, and also on the, um, the altar within the uh, holy place. And the purpose of it was to cleanse and purify them because of the sins of the people which were committed in ignorance. And he, was, he had his own sins as priest and he had to atone for himself and he also had to atone for the sins of the people which contaminated the, temp, the temple itself, tabernacle. Under the new system, under the new covenant, under this new order, if you will, New order is kind of a loaded phrase these days, right? Um, but under this new order, the blood of Christ is applied to clear the conscience, to cleanse the conscience. And the conscience is talking about what's going on inside your mind and your soul and your thoughts, your character. The mind and heart of believers, the innermost parts of your temple, the temple that you are, right? As the scriptures say, don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are cleansed through the forgiveness that is in Christ's blood, but the cleansing of your conscience is also your personal cleansing from deception. And, you know, we all have to be, and still have to be, I think it's an ongoing thing, cleansed and cleaned up from deception and its effect on us. It's not always a one-time deal. I mean, there's a very dramatic change in, in our lives, but we have to continually be cleansed from deception and the sins of ignorance that deception leads to, okay? But scriptures tell us that you and I have been washed and purified through baptism and forgiveness of sin. Go to uh, Acts twenty-two sixteen. Acts 22, verse 16. Uh, this is just sort of by the way, but it, it shows how people thought. And it's recorded in Scripture. It says, uh, so uh, it says, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized. So it's talking about baptism. And wash your sins away calling on his name. So there was a connection in this thought. Now go to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Uh, talking about how the people had, had to overcome some of their horrible, awful behavioral problems. And in verse 11 it says, that's what some of you are, were. You were sexually immoral. You were swindlers. You were, you were bad. <laughs> That's what some of you are, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, so the second, you're also washed through the enlightenment that comes to you through God's Word. And this kind of, these two kind of get more at this idea of the source of deception needs to be dealt with needs to be banished, needs to be put away. So go to Ephesians 5, verse 26. Ephesians 5, verse 26, speaking of the church, being prepared as the bride of Christ, says to make her holy, cleansing her 
by the washing with water through the word. I mean, you know, your life is changed, hopefully, because of your contact with God's word. It changes your life. It washes you up. It cleans you up. So that's another way in which we're washed. So the third, through behavior. Through, you know, not just hearing the word, but doing the word, of course. Go to James 4, verse 8. You've got to act on what you, you hear. That's everywhere, everywhere in Scripture. Uh, James 4, verse 8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So wash your hands, you sinners. It's talking about deal with the sin, right? 2 Corinthians 7.11. One last, one last uh, scripture on this concept of washing. 2 Corinthians 7.11. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So those two, final, uh, two of the three, are related to the removal of deception. And through the power of God's spirit at work in you, sin through ignorance can be put away. It can be a thing of the past. I mean, you have his word more sure, made more sure through his spirit. You understand through his word and, and his spirit at work in you. You don't have to be ignorant of sin. Now, the, the other side of that is then, yeah, but that also means you, you have to work at overcoming sin. You're in some ways more culpable because you're not ignorant of sin. You have to overcome now, in the prophetic scheme of things, because the Day of Atonement also has something for the future, but in the prophetic scheme, Satan will not be bound and he will not be cast away until the appointed time of Christ's return. And so for most of the world, deception will continue. But for the believer, the removal of deception is happening now. I hope. And you can have your conscience cleansed by Christ's blood and by placing yourself under his power and his authority, Satan can be confronted and cast out of your life even now. So the other part of this more perfect tabernacle would be the throne of God, the throne of God. And let's pick that up in Hebrews. So a little ribbon there. Hebrews 9. And I want to look at uh, verse 23. Because there's a section in there that kind of talks about the transition from the Old to the New Covenant. I'm going to skip over that. Just drop down to verse 23. Pick up the, more of this, more focused on the Day of Atonement. Um, Hebrews 9, verse 23 through 26 says this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things you know, that, that throne room of God, to be purified with these sacrifices. So the Day of Atonement is what's being talked about here. But the heavenly things themselves, what they're symbolic of, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor... Did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own? Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, this is the Day of Atonement writ large, right there in the pages of the New Testament. Under the Old Covenant... The high priest cleansed and purified using animal blood. And he, he did this in this facsimile of God's own throne room. You know, it was a copy. It was a, a, a kind of a lookalike, you know. 
It was just, you know, like you, you make a clay model or a little model of something and say, this is what you know, the, real, the real thing looks like. He did this in this facsimile of God's own throne room, which is the real throne of God in the third heaven. And once a year, he would enter the most holy place on behalf of the people, as it says, on behalf of the people. And that was the Day of Atonement. And now the reality of all those sacrifices and the reality that they foretold has come. I'm, no, I'm just talking about the sacrifices in this point. The other goat's not sacrificed. The second goat. The high priest of the new covenant, who is Christ, has entered the actual throne room of God. Not a facsimile made of metal or stone or cloth or wool or animal skins or anything like that. And he has appeared before the throne of God on your behalf, on my behalf, on your behalf. And he's made atonement for sins committed in ignorance and provided blood with the power to cleanse. Now, let's pick it up in verse 27. It says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, okay? And he will appear a second time. So there's something yet future. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ will return, and he will, he'll bring with him the fullness of eternal life, which we talked about at the, the, the Day of Trumpets. And the fullness of eternal life comes to those who he has set free from deception, who he has offered the cleansing to, that they might be no longer deceived, ignorant, and no longer kind of stuck in their sins. But, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You got to do something with all that. So the fullness is yet in the future. The fullness also of the restraining and the casting out of deception that's out there, I mean, it needs to happen for everybody, right? The fullness of it is yet future. And Satan will be bound completely, and all humanity will live in a world free of ignorance and deception for the very first time. And that will lead us into the next holy day. But we'll stick with the uh, Day of Atonement for the time being. An annual reminder. So we're in Hebrews still, and I'm going to go into the next chapter. Hebrews 10. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 say this. So the law, all this stuff written in the law and all these rules and all these instructions on, on what to do. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason it can never by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have, would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the annual atonement observance, using the Old Testament symbols of, of sacrifice and cleansing and you know, blood being sprinkled and smeared and stuff like that, would never really cleanse the worshiper in the way they needed to be cleansed. It wasn't going to. That wasn't actually what its purpose was. What they needed was a transformation to take place in their heart and in their mind. And, you know, and, and if it had been effective, then it would, would have only had to happen once. But God had them do it over and over and over and over again. Not just hundreds of times. The sacrifice of the animal wasn't 
really, you know, causing, there was no causal connection between the sacrifice of the animal and some change within people. It wasn't causing real change within them. But the annual reminder was. And it says it, it is an annual reminder of sin. The annual reminder was a very real teaching tool. It was a teaching tool. And that had the potential to have a moral impact on how people behave, what they do, if they let it. If they let it. And their problem, of course, was that they didn't. Under the New Covenant, we too need an ongoing reminder. Don't you need to be reminded of stuff still? You do. I do. I know that. We've got all kinds of little ways to remind ourselves. We can send ourselves a pre-programmed text or we can have a little chime on our phone. We need reminders. We need spiritual reminders as well of our ongoing need for cleansing from sins committed in ignorance. And these constant reminders for this and all the other aspects of what God is doing with us and within us come through the annual Holy Days. Go to 1 John 7. 1 John 7. And, sorry, 1 John 1, verse 7. There ain't no 1 John 7. 1 John 1, verse 7. And I've hit on this a few times over the past few months. It says this, and it's talking about the ongoing reality of overcoming sin. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So if we're enlightened, if we know the truth, that's great. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. Again, talking about this cleansing. Okay? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's basically giving them a reality check and saying, you know, look, let's get real. Sin remains, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us, again, purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, friends, he's saying, fellow, fellow disciples, fellow children of God, I write this to you so that you will not sin, course but but you know then he, he you know being real he says but if anybody does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one for he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world christ is still in the throne room of god he's there pleading your case he is there for you. He's on your side. Because the sad truth is that sin still remains. And purification and renewal are still part of a believer's life. And we need the annual reminder of the Day of Atonement. The reminder that it provides our need for ongoing purification and casting out of deception from our lives. I mean, I kind of said at the beginning, it's not just like, boom. It's a process. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. That's just the way it works. Okay. Repetition is a great form of emphasis. <laughs> just uh, go back to Hebrews and in chapter 10, Hebrews kind of goes over all this stuff again. So you think, why is he going to repeat all this stuff over again? Well, I'm going to repeat it because the Bible does. It repeats it. To emphasize it. So let me pick it up in verse 5. And it says this, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. This body is a purpose. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am, and it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Well, first he said, sacrifices and offerings 
burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, you were not pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands, he performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So Christ's sacrifice takes the place of symbolic animal sacrifice. You know, once you get it, you think, well, that's so simple. But so many people don't get that. They say, oh, you keep the holy days? Why don't you kill goats? I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's why we don't, because Christ's sacrifice is taking the place of all that. Okay, where was I? Um, Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. And first he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. So it's getting back to this idea of real inward change. And then, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. We don't need bulls and goats and turtle doves and all kinds of stuff like that. But we do need the annual reminders. We do need to understand God's plan. And the sacrificing of cleansing that's associated with the Day of Atonement is about cleansing your mind, your conscience, as it says. Cleansing your conscience, your heart, your mind. And that gets to the heart of it and our separation from God. So we're, we're in Hebrews 10, and I'm going to read verse 19 and 20 now. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, again, this is talking about the Day of Atonement. What else, what else could it be talking about? This is a, basically, this is a Day of Atonement sermon here. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain, the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse an evil conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So entrance to the Holy of Holies is no longer restricted to the high priest. That's another one of the things that came to pass with the Day of Atonement. That interesting. Through Jesus' sacrifice of his own life, his own blood, the veil that separates us from God no longer stands in the way. Go to Matthew 27, verse 51. Now this is the, when Jesus is being executed, he's being killed here and he's dying and then he dies. And um, he utters his last words. And then in, in uh, verse 51 of Matthew 27, it says he, he died and the spirit left him. And then in verse 51, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple, that curtain that was there separating the Holy of Holies, right, in the temple, was torn from top to bottom. And it was a big curtain, huge, heavy, huge. It tore from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split. 1 Corinthians 3, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 3. The veil is a symbol of separation and ignorance. I think. Ignorance. Definitely separation. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. 
It says, therefore, since we have this great hope, we are very bold. And we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. He would lose the glow on his face. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read, and it has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from deception, among other things. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the veil is a symbol of ignorance. The ignorance that brings about so much sin and suffering in our world. Sin which also leads to a separation from God. Why are we separated from God? Your sins separate you. As God says himself, your sins separate you from me. So, go back to Hebrews. And I know we're in chapter 10, but take a look at um, chapter 4, verse 16. Again, this is talking a lot about the, the high priest. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach then God's throne, that place in the Holy of Holies. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But that ongoing process of getting rid of deception, cleansing from sin, seeking forgiveness for the ongoing overcoming of sin. We can now come boldly before the throne of God, each and every one of us. You can do that through prayer, through Bible reading. You can come into God's presence now. So back to Hebrews 10. And let me pick it up in verse 21. So since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from an evil conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So we continue to gather together for this annual reminder about our need for cleansing from sins, from ignorance, and the removal of the source of deception. And the new covenant significance of the Day of Atonement remains for the people of God. And therefore, we continue to observe it.